Welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity One-on-One with Larry and Joe. I am so fired up about this podcast, and I'm going to tell you why. I get to ask a good friend of mine some questions about his book <laughs> that um, I think is uh, very interesting, and hopefully... Um, he feels that way too. And I'm just so excited that I know somebody that actually wrote a book. I think that's great. Well, I'm pretty excited too, because I understand that you recently completed the certified ethical hacker course with, yeah, you passed with a pretty decent grade average too. So congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. That's something that, um, you know, I I know the people at Microsoft that uh, I work with, uh, the technical people, um, they're required to go through that course. And uh, so it's just, you know, it's a very well-respected, um, you know, uh, course and everything. So congratulations. And how do you feel? Like, what does that accomplishment feel like for you? It feels great. Um, uh, and uh, maybe my wife can attest uh, that four-hour test. It's no joke. I have to take it now for the uh, ECU council for the uh, to get the to get the cert, cert like to get the certification. Right, that's right. another one. But uh, the test I took is just like that. And Joe, I've taken tests in my life, but my brain was fried after that one. Oh yeah, I literally took every minute of the four hours. I think I had like five minutes left. <laughs> Wow. It was fun. It feels like an accomplishment. I didn't, I, I didn't, uh, well, I trusted God. I, I was going to um, pass the course, but it was, it was, it was tough. So can you, can you tell our listeners a little bit about um, how, how do you feel as a, you know, practitioner now? Like, like if you, if you really had to, now that, you know, you've gone through the certified ethical hacker course. Do you feel like you could like, you know, take down a system or do you like, like, cause I know when I first met you, like this was a, a high interest of yours to kind of get into this. Right. And now, now you're at this level, Larry, you know, where, I mean, you're, you've passed the certified ethical hacker course. So like, how, do, how does that actually feel? Like you're actually accomplishing your dream. So uh, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, when I was coaching, <clears throat> When I was coaching in Sweden, uh, I was a defensive coordinator. I got a chance to go to the NFL, to the Oakland Raiders. They had called me over for, for, for two and a half weeks to go to the training camp. So I went there, and it was awesome, and I learned so much stuff. So when I got back, I wanted to teach all that stuff to my players. And then uh, the head coach at the time, which is a great friend of mine, Rick, um, Rick Parker, he said, uh, he said, uh, Larry, he said, I can see it just itching in you. I said, it is. And that's how I feel about this uh, certified, uh, uh, about, uh, about the uh, ethical hacker course, that I, I just got the knowledge now and it's just itching. I want to get on out there and do some stuff. Mm, mm, that's, that's so good, man. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you. A lot of people that are listening to this, you know, they're, they're still trying to plot their way. And you've been through a lot, but you've actually taken quite a few courses and everything. Now, um, we've we've had this discussion, I don't know how many times, right? But we've talked about 
the recommended kind of minimum path? Like what should someone study? What should they do to kind of prepare to get into this field? So given everything you've done now and everything you know, um, what would you tell that person that's listening? That's like, you know, just kind of, uh, getting into this, like what, what sort of pursuit would you recommend? Would you, would you have them repeat everything you went through or would you change, uh, what you've done in, in terms uh, of a course of study? Um, I'm not in the course of study, but what I would try to do, what I didn't know is, um, maybe, um, work a work along with it so if you got like a little desk any any type of data entry or help desk like just just very very entry level even if it's like 14 bucks an hour 12 dollars an hour do that along with the course because you you're actually working and learning at the same time and i wish that was something that i, I would have done and but i but the courses are are important because it's just you you learn the language and you, you mm -hmm. learn you just get so much knowledge about what's going on okay now the other thing a lot of people want to know uh and i know you you get listener mail you know quite often which is always kind of cool right but um everyone's been asking you know how is the actual like job search and uh you know what are you doing now and and uh you know that kind of thing so um i still work at Jelwin. um uh, we, we do some light tickets and stuff like that. We don't, you know, it's not like we're doing major tickets, but um, we get into some small stuff like the printer and, you know, helping people out with passwords or, you know, small stuff. Like uh, just a couple of days ago, HR had a problem with her, um, with her keyboard. <laughs> and the first thing I asked her, did you, is it, did you check the batteries? So we checked the batteries and that wasn't wrong. And, I mean, it was uh, it wasn't the batteries, and then we, you know, went from that and, and went on from that. So um, the job search is actually the crazy thing is I'm getting interviews. It's just when I get an interview, uh, they want me to already. I think what I do is I have the knowledge, and I downplay the knowledge with the actual practical experience. Mm -hmm. if, if you get what I mean, because uh -huh. I have the knowledge, I can sit there and be like, oh, okay, yeah, all right. But the actual practical is sitting there and doing it like eight hours a day. Uh, I don't have that. And I think that's what uh, maybe scare employers, but I get interviews all the time. I just had one last week. Hmm. So that is just the, uh, I think that's the biggest question for me is the, the actual just sitting and practically doing it it's mm -hmm. it's not knowledge now it's mm -hmm. that has to do with the knowledge no one of the uh one of the strategies um i've heard some people use is you know at your current employer you know asking if you could shadow uh one of the people on the security team you know you you sort of make known your interest and uh, and I'm sure, you know, they know your interest is uh, to get into that, but to say, hey, you know, could I shadow you for an hour a week or, you know, just uh, next time you get on something interesting in security, you know, can I look over your shoulder? And, um, you know, that that is some sometimes how people get into it, because then if an employer, um, you know, cares about their people and, and invest in them, you know, sometimes they can also make that happen for them through 
through like a team shadow session, you know, or something like that. We try to do that at my company. You know, we have um, people that know this compliance software, you know, to like do data loss prevention or insider risk. And we have other engineers that don't know that technology. And so they'll kind of shadow each other or we'll record videos and then they can watch those videos and that sort of deal. So that would be another idea. That's an awesome idea. The only thing about my company is it's so big that uh, headquarters is, is in um, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so all the support team is there. <laughs> so um, actually there uh, at our facility, it's just it's just my my supervisor and then us. That's that yeah. And mm -hmm. we usually have to go through support for any anything, any major changes uh, in the system, in, in the system, even though we're admin, even though we got uh, admin permissions, mm -hmm. that still doesn't matter because they, it's just certain admin permissions that they gave us. So, mm -hmm. so we still got to kind of go through them. You know, uh, some companies have those, mm -hmm. I think we said to your company that you give certain permissions to certain, if, if you're running their security stuff, Certain people have permissions, but then they still have to go through you guys to do anything further. Right. Yeah, we call that role-based access control. So yeah. you, you know, you limit um, and you yeah. compartmentalize information and access so that one single person, you know, can't take down the entire company. Because if, uh, and, and this is actually an interesting segue to some recent news that's been in the news uh, recently. Um, imagine if your co company did not practice role-based access control and every person on the help desk or in IT had full administrative rights to everything, right? Um, imagine what would happen if one of those people was paid off or bribed by a hacker, you know, who said, hey, I'll pay you a million dollars if you plant ransomware in your company network. Now that sounds like kind of far-fetched, right? But that's actually what happened uh, to a couple of really big companies recently here in the news. So there was a hacking group called Lapsus. And we now know a lot of information about this organization because they didn't practice what's called, uh, you know, operational uh, security, OPSEC. Operational security is, is covering your tracks. It's making sure that you're not doxed. Uh, and, you know, to be doxxed is to have your personal information exposed on the internet, right? And uh, usually as a hacker, you want to prevent that from happening. Well, the operators of the Lapsus group um, definitely had poor operational security. Uh, they had their information doxxed. And it's kind of a funny story on on how and why that that even happened. And, and I think we'll get to that because it's, it's really actually kind of funny and interesting. Um, but one of the hacking techniques, Larry, that this group did is they would bribe uh, employees saying, if you can give us access to a company network, you know, we either need the, the VPN credentials or we need you to hit OK on your MFA prompt. You know, when you get the MFA challenge, we're going to need you to hit yes on that. And that's all we need. And then we'll pay you money. And so what this group did is they did that and they gained access to two of the you know, biggest companies in the world and they got in there. Now, what's really interesting about this group is they were uh, basically an extortion group. So what they would do is they would steal information and then they would contact the company and threaten to leak that information. 
some of these some of these individuals became pretty wealthy one of them is worth uh 14 million dollars but what's but what's really going to surprise you is how old he is 17 17 years old can you imagine that wow 14 million dollar net worth at 17 because he was able to go steal information threaten to leak it and it's believed that he's behind some of the hacks of you know nvidia which is a very large you know semiconductor company they make computer graphics cards and and chips right. and other things right and um you know samsung and and so just uh pretty interesting now again the technique of offering to pay employees for them to give information is exactly why it's important to do role-based access control because if one of those employees gets paid off or bribed you want to limit the damage that that individual person's account is able to perform against that company whether it's deleting information whether it's stealing information you know um resetting passwords right one of the companies that uh, that hacking group got into is called okta and Okta is a identity um, company where effectively what they're doing is they're providing what's called single sign-on to applications. So if you're a business and your users have like 40 applications or 100 applications that they need to access, rather than those employees needing to know 100 different passwords, they just use one password. And what Okta would do is it would it would be able to kind of federate or use that identity to, to then log into a hundred different applications, right? Uh, through a protocol called SAML. And so what the hacker did is they basically went into Okta, they got access to one of the support engineers. So someone in IT support, and that person had the ability to reset passwords to any Okta customer. Now Okta has, you know, a lot of clients, right? They've got thousands upon thousands of clients. And this hacking group was able to reset passwords, apparently, of something like approximately 370 companies. Yeah, I mean, that's ultimately, you know, how to make this kind of thing stop, right? Is is if no one paid the ransom, then you know, just like how catalytic converters are being stolen right now, uh, you know, from cars. If if no one is willing to buy a stolen catalytic converter, then there's not going to be any thefts, right? Because they can't sell it. Um, you know, copper theft used to be a huge deal. And what they did is they basically, the government went to all the people that were buying the, the stolen copper and they said, look, you know, you have to have proof of where that copper was uh, purchased from before you could buy it and all of a sudden as soon as people were no longer able to sell stolen copper you know then they moved on to catalytic converters right so um that analogy is actually pretty accurate in terms of um or applicable for hacking hacking too once you are no longer what's called a soft target, right? Once you harden your defenses, hackers are typically going to move on to the next target because they have a limited amount of time, right? Time is not infinite. And they're trying to get that paycheck, right? So yeah. if a company can do the minimum hardening, then they can move on. The issue with this lapsus group is they found that the soft target was the human being that was willing to take a bribe. 
And what company do you know? Do you know any company where they don't have an employee who wouldn't take a million dollars? I mean, that's yeah. a that's going to be tough. That's going to be really tough to defend against. And it's not just lapsus that is bribing employees. There's a hacking group called Conti, and Conti is also um, has been observed with these advertisements. And these are pretty blatant advertisements. You know, they're you know on Telegram and and other kind of you know channels advertising. I think on Reddit there was an advertisement as well. Uh, one of them, I think, it said that they were willing to pay twenty thousand dollars per week. Now, if if you're working a minimum wage job today and somebody says, hey, we're going to pay you $20,000 a week, I mean, that, that's got to be tempting to a lot of people. Now, it, you know. So, so Joe, it, it's crazy you say that because that's something uh, during my um, <clears throat> ethical, ethical hacker course that we learned disgruntled um, employees, mm-hmm. they're the biggest targets for associate engineering or being bribed. I believe it. Yeah, I believe and, that. Yeah, because if they're, if you got a disgruntled um, employee that's upset about something or feel that they should be making more money or be being paid better or maybe they feel that they're mistreated, uh, it's easy to approach that person and be like, well, hey, if I give you this and Probably most of it is probably in Bitcoin, where it's hard to trace where they got the money from. But that's right. That's right. Yeah, and and you know that disgruntled person is probably able to rationalize in their mind and justify, "Hey, these people harmed me. I'm going to get them back." Right, and that that's kind of yeah. like almost every Hollywood movie out there is that revenge plot. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's almost ingrained in our culture to to get revenge on someone that done us wrong. Right, and. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because you and I, you know, we're Christians, right? So we share this yeah. this faith where you know when someone wrongs us, you know, our Lord told us, you know, to turn the other cheek, you know, instead of trying to get even, you know, let the Lord, you know, avenge you and and to not, you know, take it upon you. But uh, it is tempting, you know, it's it's always tempting when someone hurts you to to try to get them back. But you're right, I think the disgruntled employees is going to be that low hanging fruit. <clears throat> And so, um, yeah, I think this this problem of hacking uh, and social engineering and bribing employees is uh, most likely going to be the the next large wave of hacking because it's effective and is people harden their defenses and really implement you know best of breed and and really top grade security solutions and multi-factor authentication and you know palo alto firewalls you know they they really kind of implement the best of everything they possibly can and they patch regularly all their servers are patched well the weak spot is going to be that one administrator who has you know full domain admin rights to their entire domain it just takes that one person to agree to install some remote access software on their machine um, you know, in order to let the hackers in. So it, it's wild. I think that's definitely a, a big deal. So why, why you say that? We're going to segue into, I want to know uh, what inspired you to write your book? And can you so, explain your book to us? Yeah. Thank you so much. 
you know, in the, I think it's in the first page of the book, I sort of explained this day I had, you know, I, I remember there was multiple events that same day where I had a client who they were a, one of the world's largest kind of charity organizations that distributes food uh, to children worldwide uh, that are starving to death. Right. And they had some of their information um, publicly accessible about these kids. And that was unintended, right? It was a, it was a misconfiguration. They didn't realize that they had, uh, you know, not hardened the security of, of these kids. So they called us and said, look, we have this issue. We, our mission, you know, was, you know, they told me, they said, our mission is really focused on these kids. We want to, you know, focus on food distribution. We're not a security company, you know, um, we have security people, but that's not like really what we do. So they, they called us to say, can you come in and audit, make sure that our security configuration is locked down so that that doesn't happen again. And, and then, uh, you know, I had another conversation with another company, you know, an hour later, um, uh, and, and then another one and, and, and it was just back to back to back. And I thought, you know, there's so many companies that need help. There's so many people that need help to, you know, with security, what's the most effective way for me to get the information that I know out there to as many people as possible? Um, because, you know, one phone call at a time is just not going to get it done, you know, with, with as many people that need help. Right. So I thought, okay, let me write a book and I'll just share everything I know. And I just, you know, I won't hold back. There's not going to be anything I'm holding back here. It's just, you know, I'm just going to dump it all in there. And, you know, I didn't want to write like a, you know, 2000 page book that no (laughs) one's going to read. I wanted to write a thin book. That's like the minimum amount of information necessary to secure your cloud environment. Now, today, most organizations have Office 365. They're using it for email. They're using it for SharePoint, Teams, OneDrive, you know, for collaboration. And that's kind of the, the heart of, um, you know, what what a lot of businesses are using today. There's, there's a few businesses that use Google, you know, like maybe universities and education, but it's not very prominent, you know, in, in enterprise, you know, businesses today. So I thought, okay, let me let me focus on securing and hardening that technology. Uh, that's what my business really specializes in. So that that's what I know, right? That's how I can help. I I can't help you with securing Oracle or, you know, uh, other systems that I'm not familiar with. But I am very familiar with Microsoft technology. So let me actually start there. So, so why why yeah. just why just Microsoft? Yeah, great question. So Microsoft 365 is is the um, system that over 90% of businesses use and it's core to everybody's email system. So email is the number one way that companies get hacked. Um, a phishing email is very likely to get someone in your organization to click on it. So studies have shown that if a hacker sends a phishing email to all employees at a company, somewhere between 20 to 50% of the employees will click on that phishing link. Now you can do phishing simulations, you could do security training, but you'll never be able to fully eradicate a human from making a mistake. And and I'll just give you an example of of a type of email that someone's probably going to click on, right? So imagine that the CEO or CFO gets an email from somebody who claims to be a lawyer suing them 
And, uh, you know, here's the attachment from a law firm with a cease and desist order. And, you know, what C-level executive is not going to open that up to see why they're being sued and how they offended someone or, you know, the sexual harassment claim, you know, or whatever it is. People are going to open those kinds of attachments all day long. And so because email is the primary way that hackers do gain access to organizations, and, and it scales well too, by the way. You know, if, if you think back to that whole bribing thing, that's a one-on-one. The hacker has to kind of find an individual, you know, uh, pay them. You know, that's a one-on-one thing. Phishing scales. I, I, I could send one email to an entire company in 30 seconds and 10,000 people are going to get that email. Um, to bribe, you know, 10,000 people, that's, that's difficult. Um, but a phishing email is is very efficient and very effective, and it remains the number one way that hackers get in. So I chose Microsoft 365 because that's what most companies use for their email. They're using what's called Exchange Online. And if people are getting these phishing emails, I wanted to, in the book, explain how to harden the email system, how to harden the identity, so that if somebody does click a link, and they accidentally type in their username and password. How can we actually still prevent the hacker from gaining access to that email account? Um, and that's really the, you know, the book is really focused on three things. It's securing email, it's securing identity. And then the third thing is focused on securing the device. Because if you do open a PDF, because there is no perfect email security system, even if you use all the principles in the book, uh, that I mentioned, eventually an attachment is still going to eventually get by and it's going to launch on the de- desktop or laptop, right? It's going to open. That's the last line of defense. If we can actually learn how to secure the endpoint so that a malicious attachment or a malicious website that the user browses to is, you know, if we can limit the damage or at least detect it as soon as possible and isolate that machine or remediate, that's really, you know, those are the top three things in my opinion, identity, email security, and then device security. So the book is focused on those three things. Now, there's some additional things in the book that I cover, um, like a lab on how to build your own 365 environment, how to secure it using, you know, all the techniques in the book. But the book is very thin. It's it's meant to be readable. Um, and I don't know, what, what was your impression uh, from the book? I think it was an awesome book. It was easy to read and easy to follow. So just for the common user, I feel that it was very educational, but very educational to where they can understand. I think that that was very important. And that kind of segues way into uh, my third question is, most people might think that Microsoft 360 is just a, just a regular, just an office program. Can you explain how, how do you secure with it? Oh yeah, that's a great question. So you're right. A lot of people, when they hear about you know Microsoft 365, they probably think of you know like Microsoft Office, like Word, Excel, yeah. PowerPoint, and that that's how exactly. I think students and people probably use it on their computer today. So as a business, uh, there's a lot going on you know in Microsoft 365. Um, you know it, it's it's an email system. It's a it's a website. So they call it SharePoint Online. It's a it's a uh, cloud storage solution where you could back up all your files that's called OneDrive for business yeah. uh, there's a there's a video conferencing and chat solution called microsoft teams so that kind of competes with like zoom and webex and other things so uh, 
there's quite a bit going on uh, for a business to kind of, you know, function. And so, um, you know, how do you secure all this, right? So the first step is to enable multi-factor authentication. So multi-factor authentication means instead of the user just typing in a username and password to sign in, there has to be some sort of additional factor. So if you think about a factor, you know, it's something you know, it's something you have, or it's something you are. So something you know is a password, right? Something you have would be like a key fob or a smart card or something you like, you know, maybe swipe on a, on a building access to kind of open up a door. So that's something you have or something you are, it, that is a biometric, you know, it's a thumbprint, it's an eye scan. So those are basically the three ways to authenticate someone. And so a multi-factor authentication would have three of those factors ideally. Um, you know, one factor being a username is pretty guessable because in Microsoft 365, that's almost always going to be your email address. So uh, since that's oftentimes public knowledge, um, you know, we don't always really count the username as a factor, but it kind of is. Um, the second one being a password. And then the third is really where there's tons of choices. Uh, so many choices. I don't, I don't want to really bore you on, on this, on this uh, podcast, but you know, <laughs> just to give you, you know, oftentimes it's going to be a text message to your phone. Um, or it could be an application on your phone, like Microsoft Authenticator, uh, some companies use Duo. Uh, you know, there's there's a few of those kind of choices out there uh, as a third factor. Um, I personally believe that the most secure way to do multi-factor authentication today is to really introduce a fourth factor, which is a device authentication. And what I what do I mean by a device authentication? If Larry, if somebody um, if somebody wants to hack you today and you're using multi-factor authentication, right? So you have an application on your phone that's going to give you a little pop-up notification saying, are you trying to sign in? Yes or no, right? Um, you're going to hit yes every time you're signing in. And so eventually over time, that little notification prompt almost gets stuck in your brain like it's all, always a yes. Because if you're using it every day and you're always hitting yes, as soon as you see that prompt, you're probably going to hit yes because you've, you've been sort of trained and conditioned to always hit yes to that. And that's what's happening today. Hackers are basically, um, once they get a password and people get those little push notifications on their phone, they're almost always hitting yes. And it's just because they've been conditioned to always hit yes. So to me, that's really not a very effective factor of authentication anymore. And right. um, and so I, I believe that in order to really properly secure Microsoft 365, we need to basically set up a you know a device level authentication. And what that means is you're uh, essentially um, establishing a trust relationship between the device and Microsoft 365. Uh, so that even if the hacker does get the user and password, even if they do convince the user to hit yes on that MFA challenge, uh, then because the hacker's device is not enrolled into your company system, they will be unable to sign in. They'll be unable to authenticate. And so the book really talks about how to achieve that device level authentication, that device trust. There's 
there's now three or four methods of doing that. A um, lot of options available, and and that's really what my business does. You know, we we provide consulting services to help organizations implement those those types of things. And uh, and in the book, I'm just trying to you know give away what we've learned to help as many uh, people and companies as possible. That's awesome. So in saying that, that kind of segue into my my fourth question is, do you think it's going to come a time where we're going to uh, do away with passwords? Great question. So in in uh, chapter one, we discuss this uh, this technology called passwordless authentication. Right. And passwordless authentication from a Microsoft perspective means that when the user goes to sign into their email and they type in their username, instead of typing in a password as their second factor, they will use something else as the second factor. For example, um, the application I mentioned on your mobile phone, the Microsoft Authenticator app can be used as the second factor. So that would be something you have. And oftentimes, because you're using a unlock code on your phone, like if you lost your phone at the mall, um, somebody who picks up your phone is not just immediately going to be able to use that authenticator app because your phone is locked. So it also have to be something that the hacker knows because uh, there's an unlock code. So something you know, something you have. And so, you know, the fact that it's something you know and have in addition to the username, you know, you can really make a, a strong argument that passwordless authentication is still a multi-factor uh, solution. And then there's two other technologies that Microsoft supports, uh, actually three other uh, technologies they support for passwordless. Uh, the second is called Windows Hello for Business. It's built into Windows 10. It does not support Mac or Linux or anything else. So it's just a Windows 10 or Windows 11 technology. And um, effectively what you're doing is you're signing into your laptop uh, with something other than a password. So either uh, if you have a forward-facing camera, you can authenticate with that or your, or your fingerprint. Um, and that's Windows Hello for business. Windows Hello then, when, as soon as you go to access your email, um, it will authenticate you without having to type in a password to exchange online. So that's the second method. The third option is called FIDO2. And essentially it's like a, a USB key um, or even a, a, a near field communication NFC uh, key. And it's something you have in your possession. And the way that Microsoft implements FIDO2 is when you go to use that FIDO2 security key, you also have to type in a PIN, so something you know, but you're never typing in an actual password. And um, so that would be the third method. And then the fourth method is fairly new. Microsoft added a feature called certificate-based authentication. And that is now supported as a passwordless option that's new. It's still in public preview. Um, but essentially, you have a certificate, a digital certificate that's installed on the device. And when you go to sign in, instead of using a password, you would use that certificate. So Microsoft does support four different methods of passwordless authentication. That is awesome. That is awesome. So then I kind of segues way into my fifth question is, and um, this might get a little technical, for our listeners, but if you read the book, uh, you understand. Um, um, can you explain uh, uh, PBKDF2 and how it helps you? Yeah, so that is a encryption protocol, right? If not the strongest, um, you know, form of encryption. It's how Active uh, Directory. Uh, encrypts a password 
before sending it to Azure Active Directory. So uh, this gets back into, remember how I was talking about single sign-on and organizations right. that, that want their employees to um, sign into their computer with their Active Directory password. And then when they want to access something in the cloud, like Microsoft 365, they don't want that user to have to type in a different password. So what Microsoft did is they created a server called Azure AD Connect, and it synchronizes the Active Directory password to the cloud. And it uses that protocol that you mentioned to encrypt uh, the password. And that way, when the password is stored up in, uh, up in the cloud, it, it is stored in a way that makes it um, resilient to a like an offline attack. An offline attack means if a hacker went up to Microsoft's data center, they broke in, they got the hard drive, and they saw the encrypted version of your password on the hard disk, they wouldn't be able to reverse it to derive um, what the original password was. And and so it's it's a, you know, I think the most respected and and you know best form of cryptography and encryption available so that uh, when passwords are synchronized to the cloud for single sign-on, uh, that the hackers wouldn't be able to reverse it if they did gain physical access to a Microsoft data center, or if they hacked in there and tried to copy the passwords off the disk. Um, you know, so that that's how that's used. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Wow. So, and saying that, that segues into my sixth question. Um, can you? Um, can you explain what is spoof intelligence and how yes. does it work? I love this question. So spoof intelligence is a Microsoft technology that is looking at the display name of an email address, the from address, and it's making sure that somebody is not trying to impersonate someone that you trust. So Larry, if I wanted to hack you, um, may, maybe I shouldn't like describe this so publicly but essentially no, what, I, what i would do <laughs> is i would go to your linkedin right I, I would look at all your connections right if you make that available and that you know by the way if you're listening to this go into your linkedin and set up your privacy so that people cannot see your connections you do not want hackers to know who you know and trust because they will use this hacking technique that i'm about to explain uh, and then we'll get into how spoof intelligence can help uh, block that. So uh, essentially the hacker's going to go and they're going to see, oh, you know, I see Larry is, is in there and he's he's always talking to his friend, you know, Tyreed or something, right? And so I'm going to go to Gmail or Google or, or Yahoo or, or Hotmail. I'm going to go create an email account with Tyreed's name. And I'm going to send you an email, Larry, saying, hey, man, uh, you know, I got my account hacked. Here's my new email. What's up, bro? And hey, it was really good seeing you last week. And all that information I got from your conversation with them on LinkedIn uh, because you, <laughs> like we're exchanging with them. And, you know, you you may have seen that kind of stuff like on Facebook, like where people's yeah. accounts get hacked in social media. So you may already kind of be suspicious of something like that. But if the hacker's really, really good, right? they may be able to pull that off. And remember, they don't have to get it right every time. They just have to get it right once. See, as a defender, you have to be perfect every time in your defense. As an attacker, you just have to get lucky once, right? So if you're attacking a company with you know, a thousand people, and if you spend enough time analyzing the, the LinkedIn and the social media accounts of 
your your target that you really want to get into, eventually you'll be able to to get somebody to click a link or open an attachment. It's only a matter of time, especially if you're sending it to their personal Hotmail account. So if I if I email your corporate account, Larry, it, the chances are your corporation is probably using a very very good email security engine to block, you know, uh, malicious attachments and malicious hyperlinks. But what about your personal email account? Who's who's providing email security on that? So hackers know that. So what they do is um, they're going to try to send an email to your personal account and compromise your computer that you access your personal account with. And some organizations allow their corporate VPN to be used on the, the that person's personal computer. That's a technology or a strategy that organizations use called bring your own device, BYOD, where they allow their employees to, to use whatever device they want. But if those devices are using corporate VPNs, then the hacker is able to you know, move from that personal account over into the corporate network. Okay, so that's the context, that's the problem. How does Microsoft's spoof intelligence uh, guard against that? So what it's doing is it, it's looking at the name of the people and it's saying, wait a minute, you know, that is, that that's claiming to be, you know, your friend and it's not, well, how does it know that? So what spoof intelligence does is it's recording, it's creating a behavioral pattern, like a database, a record of who you normally correspond with. And if somebody then, you know, comes up with a different email address, but they're claiming to be someone that you've been normally corresponding with, it's going to send it to the quarantine folder. And then as an email administrator for your organization, they can determine if only the security team can release those, or if, um, you know, the person is allowed to see that and then request a release, or if they can just full self-release. So there's, there's different ways it can be configured depending on how large the organization is what they want to do um but yeah so spoof intelligence is designed to really kind of prevent those impersonated emails from making it into an organization but as i mentioned i think the the vulnerability that still exists is someone's personal email account you know um, because spoof intelligence is only deployed on the corporate um, email system not the not that person's personal email account um, so i think the important thing to do would be you know, if you are one of those high value targets, like a CFO or a controller, you know, someone that a hacker really wants to try to target because those people have, you know, the authorization to perform a wire transfer, you know, uh, direct a direct deposit, you know, th those sorts of things, right? Um, those people should be taught or trained to uh, harden their public social media profiles to reduce the chance that, you know, hackers are going to go in there and use all that information to socially engineer them. Um, right. And uh, yeah, so long answer for spoof intelligence, but it is a very, very important thing because if it's not, you know, dealt with, uh, that is a that is a, a way that uh, hackers can use that to gain access to a company. That's good. And you know what? That was very informative, and I guarantee you, uh, as even the listeners that listen to us, I was just blown away by all how you just informed us on all that. So that was awesome. So um, I was wondering, what are some of the best tools for securing your email with Microsoft 365? Yeah, so there's, um, 
That's a good question. Everyone who has Microsoft 365 is going to get a free version of what's called Exchange Online Protection. And uh, so there's no additional fee. You just need to configure it. And out of the box, you know, it's okay. It, it, it does block, you know, known malware. So if it's like, you know, a virus that everybody knows about, it's going to block that kind of stuff. What it, what Exchange Online Protection doesn't do is it's not going to block uh, a malicious hyperlink it's not going to block what's called like a zero day threat. In other words, a virus that an attacker created just for that one campaign. It's not, uh, you know, if they uploaded it to Virus Total, which is a, a website where you can look to see if a, if a file has been infected or not, it's not going to be up there because the hacker created it, you know, purpose built for that one target. So exchange online protection is, is really like that basic security, but it's not like the best security. And so if you want the best security, um, you have to upgrade your Microsoft license to uh, Defender for Office. And Defender for Office um, has two plans. Plan one is going to scan the behavior of the attachment by opening it in a sandbox and seeing how it behaves. And if it's doing malicious things, it's going to block it. It's also going to scan the hyperlinks to see if they look like a phishing link and it's going to block those. So it's that's plan one. Plan two offers some automation. So if a user reports it as a you know malicious email, it's then going to scan everybody else's mailbox at the company and try to remove it, you know, uh, from there. Um, so it, it really kind of adds some convenience for those larger organizations. Um, so that's that would be the solution that Microsoft offers to help protect email. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. This was really good, though. Um, we can stop there. I mean, that was yeah, that was pretty good. That was awesome. Well, thank you so much. You know, uh, this is we need to do more of these more often and everything. And yeah. <laughs> um, no, this was really good. I really, really is really awesome to connect with you, man. So yeah, all right, awesome. All well, right, hey, man. I know you got to run. Have a blessed day.